Now, I'm going to assume that some of us are still confused about what we just watched, so I'm going to try and explain it. So the video starts off with the white team shooting free throws. Likely, this player on the white team was fouled by someone on the blue team and now has an opportunity to shoot uncontested from the free throw line to score points. And so she shoots, but she misses. And this is when the confusion begins. Because when the white player misses, the blue team rebounds the ball. It means they get the ball. And in a moment of confusion, a blue player is past the ball. And instead of running towards the blue basket, where she can score points for her team, she shoots towards the white team's basket and scores, technically scoring for her opponents. But wait, there's more. In a moment of further confusion, the white team grabs the ball and now heads towards the blue team's basket completely turned around. And if they were to successfully score on that basket, they would have technically scored for their opponents too. And what's even more confusing is that the referees are just letting this happen. And at the end of the video, you see one of the coaches throw up his arms as if to express what in the world is going on. And it's one of the most confusing plays that I've ever seen. And if the point of basketball is to win by outscoring your opponents, obviously you can't win by shooting at the wrong basket. And in a way, this video reminds me of our world today. We all have a desire uh, at some level to succeed in this life. If you will, we all want to win. But too often, we do confusing things that don't help us win. And sometimes our personal confusion causes others to be confused too. And sometimes we help out our opponents. And, and, and maybe I could say this. The devil has us confused on how to win in this life. He's got a lot of us shooting at the wrong baskets. And maybe you're hearing this and thinking, George, the devil, really, we're going to blame this on him? Well, honestly, yes, and especially at least partially, because God's word says that Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believed. He has confused people. And I know it's him because the Bible also says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The Bible teaches that the devil is responsible for much of the chaos and confusion of our world. And when God's word says it, I believe it. Yet let me give you some hope. God wants us to win. Ephesians 2 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. God created us and is committed to helping us win. And, and that's something that we're going to see today in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus and his disciples are headed towards Jerusalem. It's finally time for Jesus to go to the cross and save the world. And last week, we ended with Jesus telling his disciples, I will rise again. He promises that I will win. And when you're on my team, guess what? You win too. Unfortunately, the disciples didn't get it. They were confused. 
We see that as we pick up in verse 35 that says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. By the way, a quick shout out to the young adults in our church. They helped me study for this last Monday. But at this super faith building moment where Jesus speaks of the promised resurrection, he's guaranteeing a win. Two of these hard-headed disciples respond, okay, so you're going to die and rise. Okay, I don't really get it, but but we have a question for you. When the kingdom of God fully comes, can you make sure that us two are, are the most important people in the universe? Now, you got to be thinking, why would they ask that? What made them think that, in a sense, they were as special as Jesus? They were able to sit at his level. Well, one possible reason involves the fact that James and John were part of the inner circle. Jesus invested his life into 12 disciples, but three of them he really poured into. And those three were Peter, James, and John. And we see this in Mark 9, where it says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The special three got to go onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were alone with Jesus. They saw him glorified, and they even saw Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest prophets, in glory. And afterwards, they probably came down, they looked at the other disciples, and they're like, hey, pff, what could I say? God's got something better for us. We're basically BFFs with Jesus. We got that platinum, that titanium, the elite, that black card status with, with, with God. They're like, they're like Pastor John walking into a Marriott. You know, have you ever been to a Marriott with him? I've been to a Marriott with John and all the workers are like, Oh, Mr. John, uh, welcome back, sir. May we, may we serve you? May we kiss your ring? And, and it's, it's this status that may have led them to believe. Oh, oh, Jesus, uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, we just want to confirm. We get to sit with you in glory right next to you at, at the end, right? Furthermore, this, this thought was likely compounded by a worldview that is still with us today. A worldview that says that the pursuit of personal greatness is how you win in life. Because James and John are trying to win in life. But before we judge them, for their arrogance, let's be honest, we do the same things. Not only do we prioritize our personal greatness in our life, but we also inappropriately elevate ourselves. We elevate our status to be on the same level as the Lord Jesus. Now, you might be asking, when did I do that? Let me explain. So in the church, we rightly say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But honestly, and practically speaking, technically, we're good with Jesus as Savior, meaning, hey, please save me from my sins and the consequences. But Jesus as Lord? Not so much. Because Lord means that Jesus is in charge. A Lord has authority over us. We recognize with both words and actions that he sits on the throne and we do not. 
And we're supposed to bow our knee. We're supposed to shut our mouths. We're supposed to wait for his commands and ask for his permission. And then we obey his words. However, let me tell you that every time that we choose to do things our way or apart from the Lord Jesus' leading, we actually, in those moments, we are making ourselves co-equal or even exalting ourselves over Jesus. We use our free will to kick Jesus off the throne. And we do this a lot because how often do we say things like, God, I don't care if you want me to do this. I'm going to do this other thing instead. Or we don't even consult him. We don't even ask him. We never even stop to think about, Lord, what do you want me to do? We just do it. We just act as if we are Lord of our own lives. Because have you ever asked something like, God, do you want me to date this person? God, do you want me to marry this person? Lord, how should I spend my money? How should I spend my time? Where should I go to school? How should I make this decision? Are you asking those questions as if Jesus is Lord? Most of us have to answer no. We we say, and again, maybe not by words, but definitely by actions, we say, God, I want to be this way. I want to live this way. Stay out of my life. But oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Jesus, wait, wait, don't go, don't go too far. Don't go too far because I need you to stay close enough just in case, just in case I, I need your help. In principle, we prioritize personal greatness just like James and John. And we think that's how we'll win in life. But look how Jesus responds. Verse 38 says that Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? I love that first part. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Or in other words, you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, couldn't Jesus really say that to us too? And I envision Jesus looking down from heaven and thinking, you have no idea what you're doing. Because we don't. Like the disciples, we don't get it. And like the disciples, the evidence of that truth is in our actions, our habitual bad choices. James and John didn't get it. They rightly or, or they wrongly thought too highly of themselves. Look at how they chose to respond. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? You know, the biblical vocabulary here refers to the cup of God's wrath. And yes, God does have wrath. Now, wrath, God's wrath is not like human wrath. It's not him flying off the handle in an emotional rage. He's not like Vecna from Stranger Things. No, God's wrath is his perfect eternal judgment on sin. It is perfect justice. It's what we deserve for sin. And it is a fearful thing. You don't want none of that. To clarify, you couldn't handle the intensity of God's wrath for more than a second. Like, have you ever like popped an engorged uh, uh, tick in between a paper towel? It is a little bit gross, but that, that's what would happen to our fragile bodies if we tried for uh, tried to endure for a millisecond God's wrath. But here's what's crazy: on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus fully endured as our substitute. First John 2, 2 says, he, that's Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins 
of the world. The word propitiation means wrath absorber. And only Jesus, as the Son of God, could absorb the cup of God's wrath. James and John could not drink this cup. They had no idea what they were talking about. Additionally, when Jesus refers to the baptism, this is more than just the, the it's more than just water baptism. He's speaking of identity. When John the Baptist water baptized Jesus, he wasn't doing it because Jesus had sins that he needed to repent of. Rather, Jesus was identifying with sinful man in a unique way. He was immersing himself into mankind by identity by baptism so that he could fully pay for all of our sins. Again, only Jesus could be baptized with this baptism. Yet the confused disciples replied, oh yeah, we're able to do that. Jesus may or may not have rolled his eyes at this point, but he uh, goes on to say, uh, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Although I, I picture Jesus a, a little annoyed at James and John here, uh, he responds with grace and tells them, you will drink the cup and be baptized. It's not the same cup and baptism that's required to save the world. Only Jesus could do that. But as followers of Jesus, they would share in his sufferings and burdens for the furtherance of the kingdom and on behalf of others, which gives us a chance to pause and think about something important. Suffering is part of the present unfolding of the kingdom of God. Suffering does not mean failure. For the child of God, suffering is not without purpose. Now, suffering is not the point of the kingdom of God, but it is part of the process by which God chooses to make us more like Jesus. He also sovereignly uses it to, to, to reach the world. Therefore, if you are suffering today, but also walking faithfully with God, know that you may be simply experiencing Jesus's promise to his disciples and know that your sacrifice, your suffering is not in vain, but has eternal meaning and purpose and God's eternal rewards and victory are awaiting for you because as Paul told Timothy, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. With that, look at verse 40, because I believe it's it, it's key to understanding our passage. Verse 40 goes on to say, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice that Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, the second person of the Trinity says, I don't know something. That's weird, isn't it? Because if Jesus is God, how does he not know something? The answer involves a mysterious practice that Scripture reveals is part of the Holy Trinity. But let me warn you, this practice is a naughty word in our culture. It might get you canceled if you use it too much. It's an S word more disliked than suffering. The practice of submission... See, nobody likes that word. The practice of submission is what we see here. 
Now, within the Trinity, there exists a perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of them are co-equally God, yet the Son and Spirit submit to the Father, meaning, mysteriously, the Father knows things the Son does not, as Jesus discloses here. How is that possible? I don't know. What I do know is Jesus wants us to see that submission is both beautiful and necessary because it's part of who he is. And God is beautiful. Amen. And if we sinners want to win, we need to learn to practice submission. Because on this journey of life, God is going to tell us things that we don't understand. We are going to read things in his word and hear things preached that are radically and fundamentally different from what the world around us teaches us or from what we naturally feel or maybe even what we grew up believing. For example, verse 41 says, and when the 10 heard it, they became indignant at James and John, meaning that they were jealous that James and John got the jump to greatness ahead of them. And Jesus called to them and said, hey, hey, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, whoever wants to win, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man, he's referring to himself here, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's different. The the world teaches us that we win by achieving personal greatness. And our sinful nature is drawn to that. That message feels right. It feels good to us. But Jesus clarifies that is a lie. That's confusion sourced from the devil. We win not through personal greatness, but by being a servant. And that's crazy to us. Again, it's opposite of what we feel and what we see in the world. But here's how we know that Jesus is right. He proved it. Because if sin and death are our greatest enemies, then defeating them is truly winning. And when the Son of Man, when Jesus served his Father and us by giving his life as a ransom for us on the cross, the Bible says that he defeated sin and death. Furthermore, when he rose three days later, it was proof that he won. That's why 1 Corinthians says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Do you want to win in life? Well, then start by asking yourself, 
Am I a servant? If someone was to examine my life, would they describe me as a servant? Or would they describe me as someone who is committed to personal greatness? And consider this too. We are all willing to serve when we want to. Sometimes we serve because it fulfills our personal or preferential desires, or it advances our our personal greatness. We serve then. But here's the real heart check. Will you serve when there is no personal benefit to you? When it adds nothing to your personal greatness. In fact, it causes you to give away what you have, to give away your benefits. You know, we see this perfectly modeled for us in Jesus. I believe scripture reveals that Jesus would have preferred to not go to the cross. Why else would he ask his father in the garden, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then it says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the servant's heart. In submission, you say, not my will, but your will. It's it's giving your life in service to God and others, even if you don't want to. It's living out the words of Paul who said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When you live this way, you will win, which is why Paul continues with, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's refine our question. Let's not just ask, am I a servant, but rather, am I a servant like Jesus? I've heard it once said that as Christians, if we claim to be servants like Jesus, why do we get upset when people treat us like servants? You know, how we respond when we're treated like servants reveals the genuineness of our servant's heart. It shows how in sync we are with Jesus, which also indicates if we're on the path towards winning. And so as we close today, I want to ask, do you want to win? If so, then realize this, that left to our own sinful natures, we have no idea what we're talking about or how to truly win. But we can know that Jesus does know how to win. And he is calling us to submit to his ways so that we can find victory. Prioritizing personal greatness is shooting at the wrong basket. We win by obeying God. We win by letting King Jesus be our greatest influence. If he says, be a servant, then by faith, we live like servants. And today, 
If you are ready to take that step of faith and live this way, if you are ready to let Jesus be the Lord and Savior of your life, then pray this with me. Say, Jesus, I hear the truth of your word today. I sense your kindness and it is drawing me to repentance. Today, I want to make you the Lord of my life. And so please forgive me of my sins. Save me. I believe what you did on the cross saves me. And I have faith that you rose from the dead. And I trust that you are going to help me win in this life. And so fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can let you be the greatest influence on my life and that I can begin to live in service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for Church Online. If this was your first time, please fill out a Connect card. We'd love to say hi to you, even send you a gift. Also, if you have any prayer requests, would like to know more about the River Church, or if you have decided to submit and follow the Lord Jesus Christ today, we want to hear from you. And there's an easy way to do that on our website, riverchurchct.com, or you can text the keyword TRC Connect to 94000. God bless you. Have a great day.